Number seven, media production. Welcome to the Biz Crush podcast series, where I interview successful South African entrepreneurs and movers and shakers in order to extract practical advice on succeeding in business and life. I'm your host, Jacques Passant. And remember, if you prefer Afrikaans, check out Clipco's podcast series. As one of the continent's most knowledgeable leaders in mining engineering, Bernard Swanepoel demonstrated as CEO of Army Gold the ability to manage the delicate balance between cost and optimize productivity through teamwork. With more than 40 years' experience in the South African mining industry, of which a quarter of a decade was in executive management, Swanepoel was recently appointed an independent non-executive director of construction and engineering group of Eng's board. And he also serves on the boards of Impala Platinum, Simplats, and Omni Holdings. As a leader, he has passionately tried throughout his career to flatten the corporate hierarchy and remove unnecessary layers of management. Arnott, uh, thank you so much for your time. It's, it's, it's an absolute pleasure to see you again. It, it just hit me when I stopped here. I think the first time we met was in London in, in well, 2017. It was around January, Feb, I think, yeah. with, the, with the Biz News thing of, mm. of Alec. Uh, then we bumped into one another with the SBI in Daba and, and Free State in Daba and Bloemfontein. The Small Business Institute. The Small Business Institute. Absolutely. And, and not yeah. knowing that we would be returning to South Africa. And yeah, I'm sitting at, at your offices in Santon. So it's, it's so nice to see you again. Yeah, no, good to see you and welcome back. Thank you. You know, I've always thought that when South Africans leave, we make this assumption that it's for the wrong reasons or permanently. And to me, it's just every person's personal trajectory and, and you know, journey and growth. And so it's really great to have you back. No, it's, uh, I must say it's, uh, it's an absolute pleasure. I think, uh, uh, I think even now the challenging you know, times in the world, it's, it's almost like I'd rather be here. Then <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and then uh, we can unpack that, that almost in uh, uh, another, another, another episode. That's another podcast. Yeah. It is. Uh, but uh, Bernard, please tell us your story. So where did everything start, you know, the journey from there to, to where we're sitting now? Sure. So I, uh, a couple of months ago, turned uh, 60. So I'm one of those sort of uh, not only... That's the new 40, isn't it? Uh, I'm not only <laughs> double vaccinated, I'm even boosted. You know? So I had my old topi boost already. That's how old I am. So I grew up in Rustenburg, which obviously has forever been a mining town. You know, my dad actually worked as a surface carpenter at Rustenburg Platinum Mines. In was it always platinum, by the way? Yeah, Rustenburg. So Rustenburg, at some stage, tobacco, citrus, and platinum. Okay, now it's Got platinum, it. chrome, PGMs, as we would correctly say. Yeah. And so I grew up there, went to school there, um, and then in grade, today, grade 11, my second last year, my dad lost his job on the mines. Nothing has changed, huh? And uh, obviously, as a white South African, he could always find a job with the government in Pretoria. And so I stayed behind with the neighbors, matriculated. As it turned out, when I had to uh, think about what to study, I was the third son. The previous two um, took uh, education bursaries. I wasn't going to become a teacher. I was interested in engineering. And the person with whom I was staying at the time, he worked for Union Corporation, today's Impala Platinum, and he knew the right person, introduced me, and there were more bursaries than white male candidates. So it's perfect, perfect situation. 
absolute privilege. Huh? Um, in those days, you had to be male and you had to be white to study mining engineering. By law, females were not allowed really? underground. And of course, by law, blacks were not allowed to have senior positions, technical positions. So I'm a real product of a set of circumstances, bad legislation that privilege advantaged me. Yes. So I studied mining engineering at Tux because, you know, the Engels went to Wits. <laughs> and the Afrikaners <laughs> went to, to Tux, and okay. I studied mining engineering at Tux. Then only did I do my uh, military service. Those days we all wasted two years, or most of us wasted two years in that. And at that time, uh, it, during my uh, military service, I started a BCom, which I later finished and, and, and did a BCom uh, honors in financial management because. I just knew that the technical skills needed to be supplemented with other skills. And I've did, did you have this vision? Did you say, listen, one day I want to I run a mining company? <laughs> no. I mean, that was very forward thinking to combine finance with... No, with... listen, where I grew up, I had no such expectation. I had no right to think I would ever be one of the, you know, Engels yeah. and head office. You know yes. what I mean? Because remember, that industry was very segregated. You mm. know, the ownership sat in London, yes. private school... You know, people of English background. Glass ceiling. With a management, us Afrikaners made middle management, frontline supervisors, and black people. And yes. now the black people with the Cyril Ramaphosas and the Gwere Mantashes, they were meant to be the team leaders and, and below. So, I mean, it's, it's hard to think back to how stupid some of these things mm -hmm. were, but mind-blowingly stupid. Now, I mean, obviously, a whole host of things happened. I, when my peers, you know, took better jobs in Joburg and got the company's cars quicker, I stuck it out. I really enjoyed the leading people part of, of mining. I was never a great engineer, but I always liked the getting teams of people to do things. I'm lazy inherently. Um, and then, of course... Smart worker. <laughs> and then, of course, very early in my career, the mine I was then at... I was sent to, was a marginal gold mine. Now, anybody who's heard of Banner Swanepoel will associate my name with marginal loss-making gold mining. It's not a great association. I got sent to Grootvlei, and when I came out of the army, um, the National Union of Mine Workers won a first-ever court case to be officially recognized. The first place in the country where they were recognized was Marivale, which was a division of Grootvlei. So when I came out of the army, the whole world changed. I went into the army in one model. I came out of the army two years later, the world was changed. And I was young enough to change with that. Yes. And I was what, what was your initial impression when you walked in there that, that two years later after the army? Was it a, was it a shock? Was it a... You know, um, when people like... We don't know what you don't know. When, when people like literally Cyril Ramaphosa sits there and he eats these arrogant, racist senior managers for breakfast in meetings... You know, and I mean, it was just such a different world. And I was really just young enough not to have known the good old world. You know, what I mean, Got it. So, no, no, no reference. So yes. it was like a fantastic opportunity because what then happened is for many years, 10, 15 years, as soon as somebody could afford to retire, they did because nobody was going to take this nonsense from these people who previously were meant to be, you know. And so there was like a generational shift. And so me and a few other people were that generation that were white enough to be allowed to go and study, you know. We were male enough to be allowed to work underground. We had good qualifications, and there were vacancies. There were more opportunities than what there were people at. Do you, looking back at that, was there a, almost like a uh, um, 
today we have brain drain with people mm. immigrating. Was there a brain drain component with, with these old boys retiring so quickly or was, what was the level of contingency at the there time? There was a, a huge shortage. It literally just meant that the few candidates could pick. I mean, there was a, a phase of my career where I, the mining industry in those days would work like before you got promoted, you acted in a position. You know? So you would act as a mine captain for six months before you became a mine captain. I would literally go from acting as a mine captain to be appointed so that I could act as an underground manager to be appointed so that I could act as a manager mining underground. Sure. I mean, we got sucked through the, the structures. Now, I mean, the old Danes, of course, still joke with us and say, well, you were a shift boss for a long weekend. I mean, like, before <laughs> so what Van, do you really know? Before yeah. Van Rooyen yeah. became the long weekend minister, we were the long weekend shift bosses and mine captain. But of course, what happens in an old industry when you move through that very fast is you do not quite become, you know, the exact sort of... Um, this, uh, you know, I mean, you move so fast that you don't become a typical mine captain before you get promoted. And and I, I don't. Which say again, this, it's uh, there's pros and cons, right? Absolutely, and I certainly don't say that derogatory. But I mean, in my early 30s, when I started to be, you know, initially a general manager of a mine and later the CEO of Harmony, I mean, I was so young that a lot of what was wrong in the industry I could still see. I would like to think, yes. and I was brave enough, stupid enough to attempt to change some of those, you know. And, and um, again, this is my version and my story, but there are many other people in similar sort of situations. So we were a generation that got sucked up. Democ democracy happened. We had new freedoms. I mean, you know, suddenly Afrikaners got promoted. Lots of good things happened. And we were absolutely advantaged by the fact that black people were not yet in the system. Women were not yet allowed to be in the system. So, I mean, there were always more vacancies and opportunities than candidates. Fantastic for me personally. Yes, just, just perfect, perfect timing. So lucky. So lucky. So, so fast track to an extent, just the nature of the beast at the time. Um, enjoyed people. So, <laughs> what was that? So, when, when did you get to that point? Say, okay, there's a career path to to CEO, was there a, a, a point? And then let's, let's unpack Harmony a bit, you know, what happened there and the story and the challenges and the opportunities at the time. So that I had no expectation to be the CEO of a company. Obviously, I had very clear three-year targets, you know. And initially, I had to recalibrate. I had to say, I'm getting where I thought I would be in three years and a year. There are two ramifications. Yes, One yes. is put extra time in to prepare yourself. And the other one is to dream bigger. Mm. So it took me some time before I thought, I'm now senior manager at mine level. There's no reason why I can't at least aspire to be the manager. You yes. know? Um, and that certainly, I mean, when I, when I went to Beatrix, which at the time was the flagship of the Genco Group, gold mine in the, uh, Virginia and the Free State or uh, outside Virginia, um, I really, for the first time, thought, you know what, I could see that, you know, I mean, I could go beyond this. Mm. As it would be a parallel process of shelters that were unhappy with the old mining house structure, started the revolt at the Rand Mines, Peter Flack and the cables, the infamous cables mm. now, but those days really disruptive corporate thinkers, they got involved at Rand Mines, and Rand Mines owned Harmony. Time for a Did You Know insert. Founded 70 years ago, Harmony Gold is a world-class 
gold mining and exploration company with a copper footprint that operates in South Africa, as well as Papua New Guinea, one of the world's premier new gold copper regions. Acquisitions have revitalized the company as the largest gold producer by volume in the country, where the company is also a significant operator of gold tailing retreatment facilities. With a significant portion of the group's mineral resources and mineral reserves in Papua New Guinea, Harmony is also acknowledged emerging market specialist. Although Harmony was listed, they controlled Harmony, and they were looking, they were looking for somebody to do things very differently. And when I got the call from Roger Cable, who I've never met before, I unashamedly said to him, I've been waiting for this call. Wow. And I went out for a dinner with him, and the uh, next day I decided to take the job as the MD to be CEO of Harmony, and I forgot to ask what they're going to pay me. That's how <laughs> obviously I mean, so <laughs> excited I was yeah. about wow. this opportunity to, outside the corporate structure, to be the corporate structure. So this must have been... Early um, 1995, remembering a year into the new democracy, all things in this country was changing, yes. everything. I mean, yes. like, whatever was 100 years old was busy, unfreezing, you know, it was just a fantastic opportunity to do things differently. What, what, what got you so excited? I mean, the yes, uh, job title, money for sure, what, why were you so excited at the time to, to take on this challenge? So I was very operational at the time. I was never a really good engineer per se, but I mean, obviously, I spent my 20 hours working a day on technical stuff. Yes. I could see how the corporate structures were inhibiting people. Not long before, I mean, 10 years earlier, I sat in a chainsaw at Grootley with white miners. Those days, mining, miner, the entry level was a reserve job for white people who did not finish school. You know. So these were people who did not finish school necessarily. They were hard, rough and ready. And I sat there and I heard conversations about the company that was more truthful than what I heard later years as I started to get promoted. Wow. These guys. So again, ground, ground levels where, where the truth There's no nonsense. Happens. There's no spin. There's no lying to make a point. There's no, I'm cleverer than you. And those, I mean, that... that so influenced me because these were people that were talked down upon, they were not respected, although they were the frontline white supervisors. And forever I thought, you know what, the people lower down in the organization actually know better. They often know the truth. They yes. know the real issues. You know, if only we could set them free, you know, trust them more, empower them, all those beautiful words. Of and, and engage, engage. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so that stayed with me. And then, of course, there's like 17 levels between the rock operator and the man in London. I mean, and those are just all levels of, you know, hierarchy levels. Mm, of, good know, old bar Places to massage the numbers, to lie, <laughs> yeah. to, you know, um, to play corporate sort of politics. So, um, and shockingly enough, because of the history of gold mining, where we were so rich, our minds were so rich that anybody could make money, uh, I joined the mining industry via the poorest of the poor mines, the marginal mines, the mines that could only ever make money if you do lots of things smarter. And I became very aware that right at the foundation of our mining industry, that how we approach our ore body, we do that wrong. The ore body is actually not one simple, you mine it all, you know what I mean? And, yes. 
And those two things then became my obsessions and to some extent some successes and spectacular failures. I wanted to flatten the corporate hierarchy. I wanted to remove unnecessary layers of management, which obviously saves you a huge amount of cost. And I wanted to change how we look at the whole body. I mean, I used to say things like, I want my people to make love to the whole body. You know, I want people to really, you know, um, the whole body dictates. You start with the whole body and then you decide, are you mine? Which, as obvious as it sounds, is just not how gold mining was done after at, 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 at the years. time. Yeah. So what, what was the, the two, two questions you mentioned Failure, success, so maybe give us a few examples of what went wrong um, and what went right. And then thirdly, mentor. Who were you soundboarding? I mean, obviously, you were very forward-thinking at the Mm. time. I I guess, um, again, the right company that Mm. wanted that. But who was, you know, that soundboard? um, Who encouraged you? I, I didn't have a mentor per se. I didn't have, before I became the general manager of Beatrix and my boss in those days, they were called consulting engineers, was PDK Robinson, a giant of, a leadership giant. He was also technical, but he, he was the first person I ever met who was firstly about leading people. Yes. Um, and I could sort of, you know, have conversations with him which I've never had before. Um, but quite honestly, um, before that, it was really, I had some, really, really bad managers, typically, like all of us, where you learn what not to do yes, by observing yes. how they treat you or yeah. how they treat other people. And you think, dude, the day I am in your shoes, <laughs> I won't be doing that. And then you try and remember that. Um, and then I also, I mean, Neil Frenemann, who today is you know, famous for what he's been doing right now at Sibanya, um, uh, him and I were colleagues at the same time as two senior people. He was the most senior engineer. I was the most senior mining guy. And we worked for a guy, Bruce Latman, just a, a, a fantastic guy, you know, the sort of leadership that, you know, he trusted people. He allowed us to do things. That, so again, that culture, just oh, top down. I mean, afterwards, I think, you know, he allowed us to make a holding into an operating shaft to improve things. Today, you think... Did we ever do a proper risk assessment? And if <laughs> things went wrong, would I have blamed Neil or would Neil have blamed me? But I mean, so there were, there were such opportunities. But I think if you're a, I don't know what's the correct English word, but if you're sort of reflective, if you think about yourself, you study yourself, you think of what, you know, if somebody interacts with you, how does that make you feel? You know what I mean? So unfortunately, a lot of this leadership journeys that we put people on are so self-taught now. Because you can't do this in a classroom at an MBA school. No, you know? no, no. You have to. And we come out of our cities in my time as engineers, four-year qualifications, very clever, we think. And we get, put, we get put in charge of 20 people. We don't share a language. We don't share a culture. I'm the boss by the fact that I'm white and ordained to be the boss. They have the experience and we speak law. So, I mean, the leadership journey, deep end, and that's why a lot of people in those days opted out and went into other careers. And you find South African mining engineers throughout the world making great contributions. But the few suckers of those, those few of us who stuck, who stuck it out, yes, was a fantastic time to be around. Sure, it, it, it really sounds like it. So, so what what were the? I would say if you have to think of two big mistakes at the time, or what not to do. I think you 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 nailed it there. Ah, uh, you know I. Uh, I, 
I once, uh, um, I, no, geez, only two. <laughs> <laughs> no, but at, at people management le- level, no, I made every single mistake that you can. I mean, I tried what I saw people do, shouting and screaming, you know, because there's no other model, you know what I mean? Yeah, that, well, that's how it worked, yeah. right? Then I stumbled upon, because I shouted and screamed and didn't perform, and in those days, if you didn't make, you know, your production targets, you were forced to work on weekends, and although you could pay the workers overtime, you didn't get any extra pay for that. And when I started to, to you know, go down on Saturdays or Sundays, go down as and go underground. But that, that was more of a, you, you, that happened, not paid, that was the, the, almost like you're hiding for not, not delivering. No, absolutely. But I'm underground. Yeah. And all the other noise of your daily routines are taken away. And then I start to actually work with the teams. Firstly, of course, I learn what I was supervising. I learned ah. how to do it. And secondly, I discovered that if you actually close the gap between you and your team, you lead from within the team. You don't shout at the team. Now, the failure is the stupidity of what you do, and then if you can't learn from that. I mean, corporately, I took on changes that I think disappeared about... You know, they were so dependent on my presence that as I left, they... You know, they so no, no contingency planning. I don't it? think if you go back to companies I ran, you find flat structures, you know, because the the gravitational forces, the resistance forces, you know, um, and so I think a lot of the things. I mean, so I would say significant failures, even good things that I still believe in that I thought we did okay, I did not make it sustainable enough. You know, a, a lot of these things probably unwound. You know, for good yes. reasons or for other reasons. Um, and, of course, in all of these things, you actually impact dramatically on people's lives. No? Mm. I mean, if you take a level out of an organization, you know, with 60 senior people in, your shareholders like it, they see cost savings, but you affect 60 people's lives. Yes, you know? yes. So, um, but um, I think if anybody ever Googles my name, that will be sad, but you will immediately see the failed bid for Goldfields as a mm. corporate failure. And quite honestly, I don't, even, I don't even think it will make my list of top 100 mistakes. Really? Because it was very public. And, you know, it was like on the front pages of newspapers. Mm. But we all make huge mistakes in our journeys. And I think it has to be okay. I think even corporately it has to be okay to make mistakes if you learn from it. You know? Of course, the old saying, if you make a mistake the second time, you know, then there should be consequences. Yes. But, uh, 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 you know, an honest mistake, well-intended, didn't know better. I'm quite tolerant of that, I would like to think. Of. Well, it, it reminds me of, of, of one, I guess, uh, uh, um, historical quote. Uh, it was, I think it was Watson that uh, founded IBM, where mm. one of the executives messed up, I think it was a million dollars mm. back in the day. Yeah. And he said, yeah. are you firing me? He said, no, I just invested a million dollars. I, I want my money back, I've right? Used, so, I've so, used that so often. So, in, so that is, is yeah. so powerful. But it, yeah. it also reminds me of probably one of the best business books I've read in the last five years with the startup nation with, with the Israelis mm. because they've got, I think, close to 2,500 companies listed on the NASDAQ. Mm. So it's the most, mm. most high-tech companies in the world of any nation. And mm. one of it is the Israeli culture uh, or, or, or attitude towards failure. It doesn't really exist. Yeah. As a matter of fact, you can, you know, if you if you fold a company three times, it's a badge of honor because yeah. yeah. it's part of the learning process. And I think it's interesting you say we still 
uh, you can't single out South Africa, but I think we still have a, a way to go to, to look at failure as, as a business lesson versus as, as, a, as failure. I do think culturally, whether that comes from our sort of English, European heritage, um, and then, I mean, of course, corporately, bankruptcy is, is a disgrace. And even our revised uh, business rescue practices is nothing like a chapter 11, where a business is almost allowed to reinvent itself, yes. shed some of its baggage, and, you know, as long as the business survives, we're still not there. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, these, these beautiful things like fail forward and, you know, um, learn through your failings, if it's, I mean, in a deeply entrenched culture, like the mining industry, of course somebody could die. So you have to have a risk appropriate sort of approach. But one of the gimmicky things we used to do to make the point that it's actually okay if you make a mistake but you had the best interest of the company you know, uh, at heart, we will be tolerant. We actually had a quarterly, we used to call it uh, the big ball award. <laughs> big, so ball. big ball. <laughs> we didn't quite want to call it the big, big ball award. <laughs> but the mistake of the quarter got publicly celebrated. And wow, wow. discuss. Okay. I thought it I thought it worked extremely well. You should and you should I, you should write a book on that. No, no. Oh. I, I had to I had to disqualify myself as a contender because I would walk away with I should just win everything. No, but I mean just imagine. I mean uh, let's bring some honesty to the conversation. If you sit at the top of the organization and you take the right level of risky awards, because remember risk equates to reward. Yeah. If there's no risk involved, there should be no reward. So per definition, this space of business is risky you know, decision. Yes. You will make some mistakes. The higher you sit, the more likely you are to make big mistakes. So again, if I was always going to make the biggest mistakes, then surely I should have had some tolerance for smaller mistakes. For sure. And by celebrating it, we tried to say, guys, it's okay. But as we said, you, know, you have to have some zero tolerance for Stupid risk. You know, of course. There's, a, there's, a, there's a line that cannot be, yeah. be crossed. And it's not as hard as it is. I mean, it's inherent. We all get in a car, put a safety belt on. You know I mean? So we, we know what, what is common sense, sort of non-risk. You know? yeah, yeah. So, so let's touch on that. So I want to I talk about back in the day, right? And then I want to unpack harmony, your time there. Thinking back, what, what was nuts? You know, I would say almost from an entertainment standpoint, you know, if you, for non-mining people out there, what was nuts back in the day in comparison if you look back now? I mean, you mentioned earlier with, with Neil that hmm. certain things you did, like, what the hell? You know, we didn't even, no risk assessment, but what was crazy back then? Well, I mean, let's just put some of the elephants on the table. I mean, apartheid was stupid. Eh? I mean, you go to that environment where, you know, the, the, the company, 80, 90% of the company's people lived in hostels, 16 to a room. Really? I mean, just, just stupidity. Then you take that to, and when I get underground as a fresh graduate who really can't even speak English yet, still not, <laughs> if it's conceivable, worse than today, <laughs> I can't even speak English. I get put in charge of people with 30 years of real experience. I get given a thousand word language, funagalot, to communicate with them. I mean, and it was hilarious. And I mean, you know, it was actually so funny that we could laugh with each other and laugh with each other. You know, and once you found out what your nickname was and you could translate it, you see these guys, you know, they had my number and they were pulling my leg anyway, you know. Um, but I mean, it is, it's almost sort of 
inconceivable. How stupid some of those sort of, you know, some of those things were. Is, is Vanagalo still a thing? Yeah, yeah, no, it is. So and you know what? Thing. I mean, obviously, politically, there's a component of old racist sort of insulting. Con- 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 uh, connotations. Too, yeah, so. but I, I have to say what I could not understand is when we became like politically aware that Vanagalo is totally unacceptable, it was people outside of the mining industry that had a bigger issue than it, you know, with it than the people in the mining industry. So it became politically unacceptable, you know. If you were to speak Fanaglo at a petrol station in, in lieu of Zulu, correctly, people should be offended. But we then decided that them, the 90% of the people, will learn English because us, the 10%, are not going to learn Sesutu or yes. you know, and again, I mean it was a perpetuation of stupidity now. So the people with the with you know with the least opportunity had to learn the new language of, of the bosses, the oppressors, English as opposed to uh, but I mean if you go underground, you hear Fanaglo. People speak Fanaglo because it also closes the gap between different languages. I just want to say because it wasn't just an Afrikaans no. uh, Toza thing, it was but, Different African countries yeah, and languages. But again, I mean, you know, you take these conversations out of a context and you sound like you're defending Fanagolo uh, and therefore apartheid. It's not what this I, is. I, I, exactly. You go underground in 2022 in most mines and people communicate with each other. In a Fanagolo, we probably have a few more technical English words in, but that's all. That's all that has changed. So. It's almost like, uh, I mean, if I, my, my dad was a surveyor so hmm. in Valcom over the years and. Um, for me, Fanagolo always had a fondness when, mm. I, when I heard him speak mm. to, you know, when you put in petrol or whatever. There was, there was a, anyway, maybe ignorantly not, but I, I never perceived it as a negative connotation. But like you said, it wasn't the people in the mining industry or even the workers that had yeah. the issue. It was outside that it was blown out of proportion. Now, I must say, uh, in my early 20s, I, obviously because of the nature of Fanagolo, which was a language for instruction, it was limited, it had a small vocabulary. But I could communicate better in Fanagalo than what I could communicate in English. You know, it's just the nature of the beast. Now, yes. you know, it's like, and that so, was what it was uh, originally for. Yeah. So Fanagalo, that that whole situation back then, today. I mean, what almost what's crazy today? If you, if you're allowed to say it, what what just makes your jaw drop? Say what the hell? The same stuff. So it's, so it's again, it's just what goes around comes around. The structures. I mean, so. The more modern an industry or a business, the flatter it is. You start off assuming you've employed somebody who's capable, competent, you know. Then the next level in the hierarchy has to add some value. Coordination, planning for the short term, logistics. The next level has to add something. Business, management, longer term planning. And then you get to owners, executive management, and when you go to the mines, you find on-site between 11 and 15 levels, and if you go all the way to London, 17, 18 levels. So the, the corporate hierarchy, stupid. In mining, originally, I think, because we started with, you know, whatever, the electricians came from wherever they came from, Scotland, and uh, whatever's come from there, it was a very fragmented thing. And around that, and I mean, of course, skills, you know, are fragmented or packaged into specific job titles. But we've built silos. So in mining, you still have a silo for engineering and a silo for mining. And so a again, silo. a communication challenge. And we, never, and we never solved the problem of integrating it 
um, and we never solved the problem of therefore making multidisciplinary team leaders. You know? And then we still take the best miner and make him the shift boss or shift supervisor. In some cases, we've at least changed the name. A mm. shift boss is now a shift supervisor, and a mine captain is a mine overseer. But nothing else has changed. You know? And so the best miner often becomes the worst possible supervisor because... Because he's not a leader. Doing, he's, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's, it's, and it's, so, so, I mean, without being overly cynical, you still look at this and you say, but nothing has, but, nothing has changed. But it's interesting because one of the things that... One of the recent interviews, and I asked, you know, we, we t- touched on that, was how mines almost the... There is, a, and again, you can never generalize, but there's almost a weakness in the strength. And what I mean by that is the empowerment of the mine manager. Mm. This is your boat, baby. Do whatever you want. It's also the weakness because it's that's his little world and show, yeah. and not communicating with the peers. So yeah. again, the, the sharing best practice, we're mm. just getting around a table. Mm. Um, I had recently we had a use a stupid example. So at our building, we've got uh, a company training the Suzuki salespeople, mm. the dealerships. Mm. And two days ago, at these three guys standing there from Cape Town, and I said to them, you know, jokingly, are you, at least are you learning something new, you know, from, from these sales courses? Yeah. And they said, no, nah, not really. There's a few refreshers. He said, but us comparing notes yeah. Yeah. is where we're learning yeah. from one another. And yeah. I always say, get, get, Peers in a room and get out of the way, you know, and let, let them start talking. Yeah. But, you know, this goes all the way back to, you know, the sort of corporate DNA. So if you drive on this uh, infamous or famous Witwatersrand uh, run out Potsdam all the way to Boetewel, you will see 50 shaft head gears. Anybody in the know can tell you exactly who built that original shaft by looking at the headgear. Concrete ones, A-frame ones, steel frame ones. So even something as technical as a headgear that needs to have a certain design criteria, each mining house concluded that its own design was the best. Yes, and, they, and you got three different it's versions. A visi- it's well, crazy. Six, seven. Six, it's uh, a visible wow, monument it? to, you know, we claim to be scientists lack and engineers, <laughs> but it's actually lack of that. Now, and then you go underground, and then the mining layouts are different, and then the, you know, and so it, it really is. Now, again, I know a lot of the people listening to this will say, yeah, oh, no, but that's not, and it's only in South Africa, and it's only gold mining, and I hear all of that, but I say, go to enough, you know, highly mechanized coal mines, and you see the stupidity. And, you know, go to so open-cast mines, and you stand there, and you think, you guys are doing what? <laughs> <laughs> and this is now, I mean, please let me not offend anybody, but now I'm like Nas Boota, who comments on tackling in the number 10 <laughs> We all know. We know it's a, it's a very it's end a, a two-page book, but it's <laughs> no. just a like two-page book. At the end of the day, Nas Boota never tackled. Now, yeah. I now sound like Nas Boota commenting on something that I can see but I couldn't do, and it is fair enough. But so it is, and this is in the DNA of, 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 of mining worldwide, but it's very much in the DNA of a South African industry that is, what, 130, 40 years old? Not many other industries that old, eh? Sure, sure. But what a, what a tremendous opportunity. And I always say it's as simple as that and it's not as simple mm. as that, right? So, Harmony. Um, so, you uh, at Beatrix, you get the call, get the promotion. Um, how long were you in, 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 were you in Virginia at the time, in Valcom? Yeah, so I fortunately moved to Virginia, lived in a beautiful general manager's house on one side of the river. 
And then I had to go home and told my wife of the time that we are moving to the other side of the river into that dilapidated old mansion of the Harmony James house. Uh, <laughs> um, so we, we, you know, we sort of moved from, you know, from a 1990 modern kind of luxurious house to something different. Um, but that was, quite frankly, the difference between the two companies. Was one so was, literally that was symbolic? Totally. Wow. One was modern. I mean, Gary Moore, the real hero of the gold mining industry, was the designer, general manager of Beatrix. It was set up for success. I took over from Sam Goodwin, who was a people leader, who, I mean, that company was firing on six cylinders and it was only a four cylinder, you know. And uh, I was fortunate enough to work there with, uh, you know, with a young team, Ferdi Dippenau and others. And within my four, first four quarters, first year, we took it to be the lowest cost producer. We overtook Vest, you know, Drifontaine and Kluwerf and all the, the brand names. And so, I mean, you know, the wind was blowing from behind. You know, I was in a team that did well, and I got asked to go and go to Harmony. So, so sorry, just a side note question. Um, the Mary Sprague disaster. What? When? I can't remember that. Was that in the nineties? Was that during yeah, your time no. there? So, uh, so Mary Mary Sprague disaster happened. Um, I was already told that I was going to go to Beatrix as the general manager. I was booked in to stay over for a night in the um, in the uh, Maryvale single quarters. So Beatrix's shift bosses lived in a township called Mary Sprague. And between me, you know, uh, um, being told to go and me needing to go, the disaster took place. That whole neighborhood washed away. 17 people died, That's if right. I remember correctly. So a Harmony uh, tailings facility uh, broke during heavy rain. And the people that got disrupted and killed were the, were the Beatrix uh, ship bosses, oh, their wives and kids. So it was a, it was, so, but this was now, say, 16 or perhaps 18 months before I then joined um, Harmony. So this was me en route to Beatrix, but Beatrix and Harmony was in the same town of Virginia. I, I, yeah. I understand. Um, no, so, uh, so, so obviously a sad, sad sure. moment in, in history. And even 18 months later, when I got to, um, you know, when I got to Harmony, now the court cases were taking place. My, so you're inheriting all this nonsense. My people nonsense. were all being, you know, um, um, you know, pursued legally for negligence, which obviously wasn't, you know, ever proven to be yeah. the case and so on. And as the company, in the end, we paid appropriately some big fines. Yeah. You know, the yeah. harmony that I was then part of later, yeah. Okay. So harmony, fascinating your example of, you know the the GM house. What the one? I, I love that. That's a, it's, a, it's a very interesting uh, example. Walked in. So what what do you see? You know, give, give us a snapshot of the time there. What what's the first things you noticed? You know, um, what are the what are the steps you you took hmm. to move it forward? So Harmony was was a, a phenomenal brand name. Whoever was the general manager of Harmony was looked looked up to in the industry. Big names like Carl Ike and so, I mean, you knew about it. How big is it globally, I mean, as, as far as production as a, as, as a house? So, so, I mean, Harmony was part of Rand Mines. When I got to Harmony, it was on a steep decline because all the high-grade reefs were mined out, and that was part of the problem. They were only existing because of past capital expenditure, and they were only 
mining the last remaining lower grade mine. Is this now what Valcom was dying a slow death? Yeah. Uh, this was I think the that start of the decline of that sort of gold fields. Yes. And and and, uh, and bad. Um, Harmony still employed 33,000 people in wow. one single wow. mine, obviously with multiple sort of shafts, you know. Yes. So uh, it was a big mine, and it was sort of coasting on it was an even bigger mine in the past, and it was the flagship of Rand Mines, and it had sort of all of those things. So what I found there was the sort of confusion you would have expected to find once we were famous, you know, once we were world class, and there was not a recognition that things have changed, you know. Um, and obviously there was huge animosity with the unions because the only thing that was certain is next year we will retrain small people. Harmony infamously stopped giving increases. You know? Part of it was constructively in conjunction with the unions and part of it was just pleading poverty. You know? And so you had 33,000 people who would gladly see the company die because they were so not happy. With really? it, you know? And yet these guys could mine. You know, they had efficient layouts. I mean, the mining guys could break rock. Bob Atkinson, who was the key man and, and for all my time there, the sort of chief operating officer, he even jokingly said we could mine extremely well, but not always on the reef. You know? <laughs> so they would go down and go and then just skip, skip and donor. And if it was on the reef, it was sort of coincidental. And that was part of my obsession with but where's the Albury, let the Albury dictate, make sure you mind the right blocks. You yes, know. And, um, in, and engage all role players. Absolutely, and then you take unnecessary layers away, and so if you take 20% of the cost structure of a company away, if you make no money, you suddenly have a 20% margin. If you had a 5% margin, you suddenly have a 25% margin. And so it was fantastic, you know, opportunity. But obviously... And, and still initially very much initiated by Brett and uh, Brett Cable and uh, Peter Flack. Initially, I mean, obviously Rand Mines wanted to consolidate the bottom end of the, of the, of the mining industry. And when the cables went astray and other things happened, it very much was the original idea is what we as Harmony then implemented, you know. So we then bought Unicell next door and then we started buying the Anglo Mines and Later on, we basically owned all of the free state. Politically, we were sort of, you know, convinced that, you know, obviously there need to be some black economic empowerment. We did quite a few deals. And then we met up with uh, Patrice and his little start-up, you know, African Rainbow Gold. And we together took over Free Gold and we later created Arm. And so it was a fantastic set of sequences that unfolded. From that ability to mine well, we then put the quality back. We said, if we mine well, let's mine reef as opposed to rock. Sounds simple, no? Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, we, we had nice, catchy frameworks like saying, you know, let's, uh, you know, no frills. You know? So we got rid of the helicopters and the airplanes, and we didn't care for the golf courses. But underground, you, you know, That's we where sure it was we operated, yeah. Top notch. Yeah, and, you know, so. so... So did you, if I understand correctly, you talk about... So it was a, a matter of, of finding these poor-performing mines. Mm. Financially mm. Find the financial around you. Mm. So again, it's just consolidating within a geographical area, economies of scale. Just pull it together, bring the know-how, and just add the little bit together, and you've got... So we, so we arrogantly, I mean... 
I was very anti it when my team started talking of the Harmony Way because I thought that was quite arrogant. And today's success, success recipe always has got the ingredients of future failure in it. And I mean, so, but be it as it may, the way we went about things had certain very easily implementable things, you know. And typically when we took over a mine from Anglo Gold at the time, we would make a 25% impact on its cost structure. That's huge. So they sell it because it no longer makes a lot of money. It may even be loss-making. Therefore, it's not worth a lot. You come and you add 25% to a margin, it immediately is worth a lot more than what you paid for it. So it's a no-brainer corporate transaction. It's literally a, it's turning around exiting type thing. It doesn't take money because the shafts are sunk. Capital is literally, you know. No hours there. You don't need more resources necessarily from a management standpoint. And they were, it was even simpler because a lot of those cost savings happen by just as ownership change. So remember in mining, a lot of cost gets incurred off-site. So Anglo's offices in Joburg and London consumed huge amounts of money and arguably, as we thought we could demonstrate, we didn't need any of the services. So yes. when we signed the agreement to take over a mine, the cost immediately dropped by 15%. Because you didn't have all this... It just fell away. It's sure. cost that no longer existed, and we as Harmony didn't bring substitute costs. No, because no, you can handle this additional workload. Effectively. And then the next 10% cost reduction, that was all the operational smart things, and that was hard work, and it took two years, typically not quickly. But there was a point in time when people would buy that, would think. If we buy something... They could almost value it differently just in the ownership chains. And yes. we had to run faster and faster all the time to obviously deliver on those expectations. Yeah. Mm. Sure. Do you, even today or back then, did you look at uh, um, competition mines? Was it a thing, you know, where the egos, that's, that's the enemy? Uh, or, you know, I'm use... a benchmarker. Eh? So, so, uh... I arrogantly thought I knew some of these mines better than the CEOs of those companies. <laughs> no, no, I say arrogantly because it can't be true. Hindsight, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, I, but I did believe that. And yeah. I had teams of people that would, you know, really pay attention, analyze. Because we, as the bottom feeders, were constantly buying the next worst mine. For us, it was always an upgrade. We started on the worst one. So whatever we bought was a little bit better. And so we, that was our future growth. Yes. You know? um, and, and so I, I really, I mean, there was a time when Impala, uh, under the management of Steve Kearney, was spectacularly well run. Time for a did you know insert. Impala Platinum Holdings Limited, aka Implats, is a South African holding company that owns several companies which operate mines that produce platinum and platinum group metals, as well as nickel, copper and cobalt. Impala's most significant mine is situated at Rustenburg in northwest. The company also owns and has interest in Two Rivers Mine and the Marula Mine in the Bushveld Igneous Complex and the Mimosa Mine and Simplats in Zimbabwe. In 2019, Impala Canada was formed out of the acquisition of North American Palladium and its mine in Ontario, Canada. In my mind, the only company I could go and look and say, geez, you guys are doing things I'm jealous of. And Steve and I knew each other. I worked for him at Grootvlei right at the start. And we had respect for each other. And we would share notes. We would literally compare notes. Our teams hated it. I mean, the team of Impala hated to be sent to Harmony 
and the team of Harmony was not particularly, you know. Yeah. But but we wanted to see what is it that you do that I can learn. And we they were platinum miners. Of course, there was, we there was there really no miners. conflict of interest from that standpoint. But even as gold miners, you're not in competition. If you produce a, 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 a ounce of gold, there's a market for it. There's a price for it. Your gold's not worth more than mine. And so all this jealousy and Just insecurities nonsense. was mm. unnecessary. So I, in, in the gold space, the South African gold space, I had strong views informed by proper deep analysis by my team of what our competitors were doing. And, um, and I would spend lots of time with the, the service providers of the industry, you know, because a lot of innovation takes place outside the structures, you know. I mean, but you would see today with the Internet of Things, with the fourth industrial revolution, all these things, it happens with real experts who then come and find an application in mining, mm. you know. And so I was always quite keen to see, are there better ways, are there smarter ways? And a lot of that was influenced by the young Neil Frenderman I met. He's now as old as I am. <laughs> but, I mean, when we met, and say I was 28 and he may have been 29, he was a progressive engineer. I mean, he wanted to put communication systems underground that didn't even exist. Wow. You know, and so, you know, very young in my career, I was challenged by an engineer, which is what he was at the time, that thought, you know, technology can solve lots yes. of sort of problems. And, uh, I mean, for the rest of my life, I've always been, I mean, I've been the sucker who says, if you're prepared to come and show us on site, I'm prepared to give you a site. You know? so wow. I've always liked that uh, well, space. What uh, and, and we're going to touch on that in a minute. So, so benchmarking in South Africa at that stage globally, what what was an impressive country? So, I mean, I I certainly that uh, uh, you know uh, in my early must have been my very early thirties, perhaps late twenties. No, late twenties. I got afforded a, a, a tour to five European countries to go and see mining, you know, a week in each country, five, six mines. Um, and, uh, and I mean, again, what was, what was impressing me was not the equipment. We used the same equipment. Obviously, very few mines mine like South African gold and platinum mines, the sort of narrow reef tabular, you know, Equipment don't scale down to that size, labor intensive. Yes. So you can't, I mean, you, could yeah, you can't to, get around. You can go to you can go to Impala to see how they do it, but you can't go to Australia. But when you go to Australia, when you go to other places, you see how they, the geologist is actually the key man. He understands the orbit. He tells the miners where to mine, what to blast. You come back to South Africa, and the geologist is not allowed to speak because the mining guys. Is that, is, is that why you ended up mining rocks? Because <laughs> exactly that was my question. Where's the geologist? That was my first thought, you know. Absolutely. Where's the geologist? Well, they oh. don't exist. Well, they're in the office or they're writing reports. And so, so it's those sort of things that... Because, I mean, obviously, what is so beautiful about mining, it is actually damn simple, but it is so all-inclusive. I mean, it is the whole thing. It is technical and it's people and it's... You know, I mean, it's deep science. I mean... Anticipating what an ore body looks like, whether it's for safety or for for valuation, um, six meters ahead of you. I mean, there's some fantastic technology there. You know, I mean, it's like, um, and so uh, so I think that exposure to how other people do it. I've never necessarily wanted to copy anybody, but I would like to see what you do and then interpret it and say, but what if this will work back where yes. I am? That is a lot easier when you are 30. 
than when you are 50. I mean, it's just a statement of fact. I would not back myself to be very innovative today in an industry like that, especially after 40 years. I mean, I can't see, I can't see what's wrong anymore. You know what I mean? Yes, I yes. have become what is wrong. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> no, no, but I mean, don't be always... Yeah, but, but, but isn't that the fact that, and, and, and I almost want to disagree with you, the fact that your mind works in collaborating and benchmarking I mean, that to me says you will always be at the forefront because you don't rely on your... I mean, the, 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 normally the, the, that side of it is I'm a wise ass because I've, I've got 10 times four years experience, right, equals 40. Uh, but you, you haven't developed after four years or 10 years. But the fact that you're benchmarking or discussing, constantly discussing and, and rubbing shoulders with, with uh, I guess, the guys at the forefront keeps you at the forefront. That, that, that's definitely the case. And if I was still an active executive, you know, I would have liked to think I would have worked hard at it, you know. But at the same time, if you give me a choice between a well-qualified 30-year young person today or a very experienced 55 years, you go for the, I know where I'm going to vote. It's like we were talking about our sons earlier. Certain things, that they just understand technology, which absolutely. we can't go and Google. No, absolutely. <laughs> so I do have a strong preference for, you know, and, and I mean, with youth comes a lot of other arrogance. And you know, I mean, they haven't made our mistakes yet. And that's all fantastic. They typically are really still brave, you know. Um, and in an industry which is deeply entrenched in its bad habits, you need mold breakers. No? You need, you know, you need people who can break down a few of the unnecessary sort of things. You know? Remember, this is an industry where we had a dress code, we had reserved parking. You know, we called each other by funny names like Manier, Sir, and you know, I mean, large office in the corner, right? <laughs> the bigger office. I mean, <laughs> listen, uh, depending on your Patterson grade, and don't get me started. Yeah. Depending on your grading. Your office had a certain square meters, either a carpet or not a carpet. <laughs> so where's the free thinking? I mean, where's the out-of-the-box thinking when the box is pre-designed for you? But a lot of that has changed. I mean, kind of, um, But of course, as we've seen in the rest of the world as well, you can have fancy, funky offices, but that can't be all that you change. You, know, you can drop titles and change the parking hierarchy, but you need to do a lot more than that. And in the end, I mean, this is really why... The current space that I find so exciting is, I mean, in the end, I mean, leadership is hard and it's flipping easy. What is hard is the, 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 the me part, the know who you are and be that authentic. I am nothing like any other person that I know and I've never tried. And I read a book on Steve Jobs and then I think, dude, I'm not Steve Jobs. You know what I mean? And I don't think anybody, please, want to be a band or swan but you want to know who you are, what you bring, what your weaknesses, blind spots are, and then be authentic because people actually like spikiness. They like the fact that my English is quite bad. <laughs> it makes me feel better. Um, and then the hard part is actually, you know, the, the, the hard part is when you deal with yourself. The easy part is, I wish somebody sat me down as a 21-year-old, fresh graduate, and said, please shut up and listen. Even if it's Fanagolo, why don't you hear where your people are? Because how do you lead people to perform better if you don't start where they are? I mean, Rossi got a dysfunctional bunch of rugby players. He could not shout them to where he wanted them. He had to join them 
Yeah, so the, <laughs> base, the basics are there, the talent was there. Of course they are there because they are. But in a typical business, we've got average yeah, South they're, Africans they're, they're, they're okay. They, they, they can they, win they, the World Cup. Yeah, it's yeah. the leadership component yeah. missing, you know? Yes. So if you shut up and you learn to listen, and I mean, obviously in any organization, part of why, yes, we have to work. But the changing from have to work to want to work is, is, is the beautiful picture of the future. What are we achieving? There was a time in harmony that people had really bought into we make a difference in gold mining. You know? And I want to tell you a quick little anecdote story. I don't know whether we did the last really successful hostile bit when we bought Randfontein. Um, it was part of a cable fiefdom. They had all sorts of bad plans for it. And on the 6th of January 2006, we launched a bit, and within a few weeks, we successfully acquired it. I mean, my shareholders were ecstatic. The Randfontein shareholders were ecstatic. My people in Harmony were confused. The Randfontein people outright hated us. So, obviously, that can't be. You can't be a Euro in New York and in Joburg and underground, not so much. Yes. So, I started a journey of trying to understand how do we get people in the organization to understand better. And in my mind, it's simple. You must give them a clear picture. They must share the strategy. There's no secret. There can't be a McKinsey file that nobody has read, but it's secret. You know, it must be simple. It must be a compelling story. What are we doing? Why are we doing it? And then you expect your leaders to get people to understand what is their role in it. And then we suddenly all like it. We all, at some stage, the South Africans thought, we're not quite sure about this rainbow nation. It sounds like fun. I want to be part of it. Now, of course... You need to make it more tangible, otherwise 27 years later it may die out a bit, or, you know. Um, so a few years later, so this was 6th of January 2000, a couple of years later, we made probably the last unsuccessful hostile bid for Goldfields. Right? By now, my people were 100% passionate about it. It failed. So, the shareholders were not that happy. We couldn't convince all the judges. I mean, we had 27 frivolous court cases against it. It failed. The people in the organization knew exactly what we were doing. They knew what we were going to do before we did it. They were 100% bought into the strategy. Now, that's why call Goldfields a failure. I tell you, the harmony of those days was not a failure because everybody in the company knew what we were doing. Yeah, shareholder failure, not not Absolutely. not people failure. And of course, you need to succeed everywhere. Of but course, just uh, just yeah. uh, you know the. Oh, I say failure. It's it's from their perspective, Absolutely. not that it that no, it was no. necessarily. What what is that? Can you give us an, a practical example um, of this? You know, communicating this vision effectively, mm. uh, but obviously, Exco is not. The guy, you know, mm. uh, with the with the headlamp on at the bottom. How did you commit? Did, did, did you bring in an HR component to take it to the next level? Did you uh, did you out, outsource that communication process? And what did that look like? What mm. was that? As I say, top down. What would you say to the guy mining and down there? Okay, listen, man, this is what we're going to be doing. Or wasn't that at, at that level? But if it isn't at that level, so I mean, any organization. Can you know, right at the top sits five people who get a fortune. Then there's 50 people who get paid a lot. And then there's 500 people who get paid okay. And then there's 5,000 people 
if you don't get to them, you can't claim to have, you know, to have aligned your people to. Yes. You know, I mean, so so for me, you really need to measure it right at the rock face, and Got even it. if you have to measure it in Fanagal. But if they don't get where you're going, now, I mean, we have made strategy a buzzword. Then we add vision and mission, and every time I have to look it up, and then I think, okay, I had it wrong again. That's the other thing. I'm still not even sure what the actual definition is. I actually buy into all that stuff (laughs) if we don't name it. You know, of course, a company must have a compelling story. Gold mining can be compelling. Being the gold miner of South Africa that is going to change the way we mine. I immediately pay attention. And I mean, right now, I'm one of the owners of a manganese business in Nelspruit. When BHP Bulletin sold it 12 years ago, it was because they could see this thing was going to die. ESCOM was going to fall over, prices were going to go up. And you take manganese fines, the product that you can't sell, you add electricity in Nelspruit, dumb, stupid, very stupid, idiotic, you tick all the boxes. That business do, that is doing extremely well. Those people truly believe that that is a business that can become, like we are, the South African beneficiation champion. And with the battery metals unfolding, manganese is a much more critical part. And every battery that will get made in the world, most of them will contain manganese sulfate that needs to come from somewhere, not from the manganese mines. Yep. Fantastic. So how easy is it to convince people in Elspray that this smokestack business can actually be the best in the country and by the way we can actually be a significant contributor to Tesla it's a compelling story mm. huh? so we play dumb stump car rugby but we can be the world champions you know so the rest of the world look down and try and convince us to play like New Zealand and every now and again we say but what is our true story mm. now every corporate you cannot justify paying a CEO what you pay him unless he puts a compelling story up now, the language is a problem. IRR, MPV, shareholder return, of course I get it. But I don't know if that translates into Fanagawa. I don't want to have those conversations at the golf. But I, and so what I like and have always thought is, but why don't you use an analogy? So, I mean, how can you run a South African business and not have a simple soccer analogy that we want to go from the local club in Nelspruit to be... That's whatever, uh, what is this, Soweto's... F and F&B. Yeah, F&B stadium. So immediately they get it. And after that, the World Cup. Yes. You know what you do? You actually empower them to equally participate. Because when it comes to soccer, that guy is slightly more knowledgeable than me. Mm, mm. Now the conversation is more equal. Now the challenges is, we discuss the challenges, but we discuss it in an, an analogous framework where the... the intellectual advantage I have of having a business qualification doesn't give me this arrogant I mean it's so simple how do you teach your four year how do you teach your four year old values what conversation that's right it's a, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a conversation it's a story and you don't dumb it down no you actually go to the trouble to simplify it to its essence and obviously you live it you know but so it's, we do that's exactly what we what we need to do as corporates you cannot sit in London and send out a memo and get the PR people to spin it and gonna uh-uh, ain't gonna work. And so obviously back to your question is obviously other disciplines like so the HR component, but HR can't do this. 
I mean, leadership can't be outsourced. Not to McKinsey, not to HR, you know, not to any other consultants. Leadership is the, you know, the domain of the leader. Yes. And we all end up in leadership positions almost reluctantly. Those who pursue it shouldn't have it. You know, if you set out to be the CEO, you are probably going to screw up. But it's really... I see, because it's, it's ego. I'm sure there are some of them that makes a fortune. But if you end up in leadership, despite the fact that there wasn't, then, you know, you have to accept the responsibility to lead people. And it's actually simple. It really doesn't have to be so hard. Sure, that, that's very insightful. I think, it, again, I probably say this every second interview I, I have... Um, and you mentioned Steve Jobs. You know, mm. his favorite quote was Da Vinci. Mm. Simplicity is, mm. is the ultimate sophistication. Yeah. And I think you just yeah. re-emphasized that. Yeah. So two, two things. Um, the first thing uh, I want to touch on is what excites you about, you mentioned the current space, the future uh, trends. What excites you about, shall we say, mining 3.0? Mm. What, what stands out at the moment? I mean, obviously, leadership is still, I think, mm. and it sounds to me, is still the, mm. the biggest opportunity in, in, in many ways, um, or missed opportunity. Um, so that's the first thing. What, what excites you about the future? And then uh, at the beginning, before I press record, um, you're a shareholder in, in, in a few businesses. Among those uh, are, are mines. You mentioned junior miners uh, and, and the challenges. So I want to, if we can unpack that mm. in layman's terms, you know, what is a junior miner? So, so those two things. So let's start with that. Uh, unpack that side of your, your, your uh, uh, businesses. What does it mean? Opportunities and, 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 and challenges. And then if we can end with, you know, what excites you about mm. the, the future. So the South African mining industry suffers from what South Africa suffers from. You know, for a whole host of reasons, going way back to apartheid and, and the legislation of the time, it's much easier to be inside the big business crawl than to be outside, you know. Like the neighborhoods, we're building higher fences, higher walls. If you're on the inside, you can make business. A few entrepreneurs play in the, sh you know, in the shade of these walls, and it's hard outside, you know. Um, that's why we've got mega businesses and very small SMMEs, and then we've got an informal survivalist sort of businesses, which by some accounts thrive. So this middle segment of, of, of San Africa is missing, the missing middle. It sounds like staying sitting next to Deep Slope, right? It's like there's nothing in between <laughs> no, there. There's, there's literally nothing. No, there's nothing. Um, and so that plays out in mining. Now, mining has got a long lead time. You need to have very, very um, uh, favorable conditions to attract risk capital, some people would say dumb capital, you know, gambling money to come and explore. But if I come and I am dumb enough to bring a million dollars to drill a hole and I find something, I must believe that that jackpot will be mine. I may have to share it, but I will own a lot of it. South Africa has made it difficult. Firstly, historically, we were so in doubt, still one of the best mining jurisdictions. Who else have got a Witwatersrand Basin? Who else have got a Marensky PGMs? I mean, you know, now iron ores, world class, manganese, the best in the world, chrome, the best in the world, spoiled for choice. Yes. So in this Within a small radius. In this elephant country, we could go elephant hunting. We didn't have to look at rats and mice and even kudu. You know, fantastic. But that meant that you know, we, we haven't done exploration, and we've made exploration, like, difficult. 
because it needs long-term political certainty. You can't worry what the next minister is going to do. You can't have new BE rules all the time. You know, um, and so we haven't explored, but that will hit us in 20 years. It will continue to impact, even if tomorrow we start exploring. And there are good conversations about re-energizing exploration. The, um, the, the, the compliance red tape... The nature of mining, all of those lends itself much more to big companies. It's much easier to run a big mining company because you have to have a, a employment equity department with 16 people to make sure you fill in the right forms. You have to, your JSC listing consumes a huge amount of energy. You know, now all of these are necessary things, but if you go too far, it becomes the, I mean, the hurdles to entry for smaller people just gets higher and higher. For a moment in time when I was quite involved in the then village main reef, which was a dormant small company that we revived and put some assets in, I asked KPMG at the time to give me an assessment of how many rules, regulations, pieces of legislation I have to comply with. 217. The problem, of course, is that it's the same 217 that Angler has to comply with. But Anglo, I've got a head office, Anglo spreads that cost over 17 mines, Anglo is big, Anglo therefore only mines the higher grade mines. So that built-in, baked-in cost of doing business is huge. Now that the mega trends like our mining was very um, electricity dependent because electricity was cheap. Well, if you take a drug and the drug becomes expensive, then you're a drug addict with an unaffordability <laughs> problem. You know? And to a large extent, those are the other factors. So we had very efficient state-owned enterprises supplying us energy, supplying us access to markets through railway lines, and all of that has changed. So if you mine 100,000 tons of coal a month, in some parts of the world you will be famous, you know, rich, and big. In South Africa, you won't exist because you don't have access to the port, and you know, and you know, and so, so it's very hard. And so we have this missing middle now. Mining, the rest of the world, it's almost like the entrepreneurs are proud to be called juniors. In South Africa, I think our male, I don't know, it's like a lady steak. Yeah, no, it's like a lady <laughs> and then, steak. And then in London, it's a normal steak, by the way. Yeah, no. So I want a two hundred gram steak. I don't want a lady yeah, steak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The same play place that yeah. So in South Africa, the added problem is nobody wants to be junior. You know, so you know we could be emerging, we could be whatever, but please don't call me junior. Um, but that's just sort of cynically a little bit of a. Uh, but so in in. Countries like Canada and Australia, you may have 2,000 listed junior exploration type companies. Wait, what, what is that? So, so is this, um, is it effectively an hourglass shape or were you talking about 2,000? Are they, is that the fat in the middle? So in our economy, I could still say there's an hourglass. Big businesses, a thin, breakable, fragile stem of proper formal SMMEs and then a foot of informal yes. in mining. The informals are criminals by decree. We call them zamazamas Zama and, yeah, and yeah. illegal miners, yes, yes. which I don't like, but that's what we do. But they don't really even exist. I mean, you know. So we have this fragile stem of a few juniors and then we have this heavy, heavy, huge top, top. world-class mining companies that are getting depleted. And so, I mean, recently, Harmony... How, how many, sorry to interrupt yeah. you, uh, Bernard, so, so 
from a job creation point of view? How does that, I mean, what is that? Because that's, isn't that the name of the game also? And I guess that's, again, South Africa's problem. Yeah. Or challenge and opportunity is, is the mines create a hell of a lot of jobs, but at the same time, you know. Yeah. So, so in the economy, and you and I have previously discussed the small business space, small businesses, you know, come and go easier, actually employ, you know, in most economies, much more people than the state or big business. Yes. South Africa, that's not true. If you don't work for the state, you work for, work for a big corporate, you know. And that's part of our problem. And that's why those two get together and they collude and they make rules. They make it even harder for wannabes, entrepreneurs and small businesses. In mining, I don't think there's such a big difference between a 100,000 ton coal mine and a million, uh, million ton coal mine on a per ton basis. I think the same number of units of production goes in because it needs to in order to be you know, economically viable. Yes. But you need exploration to need startup mines for the big companies to have feedstock. Okay? Because big companies buy their future mines, they don't discover them. Sometimes they build them, but they're not good at that. They build spectacular failing companies. So in the perfect world, it's a type of person that does exploration. It's another type of business construct that starts a mine, and then big guys come and they expand it and they put bells and whistles and gold plate, everything. Now, in South Africa, two of those steps are missing. So, yes, of course, we've got Kumba and we've got, you know, we've got fantastic mines, but you won't tell me where's our next Kumba, you know? And this is what I was saying just uh, before you, uh, you stopped me. So, Harmony recently bought the last mine that Anglo Gold owned in South Africa. So, Again, you know, you can hand your mine over to Harmony, but there's no new gold discoveries. And perhaps there won't be, but the, if you explore, you discover. And South Africa was well explored for elephants 50 years ago. People explore very differently. They explore with satellites. They explore with the seismic surveys that the oil companies wanted to do off our there coast. Was, was you know? now, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's how people explore. That's yeah. how they discover. Now, can I... I don't want to go on to, if you don't explore, you're not going to discover. And if you don't want to mine or use coal, gas is a step better. But if you don't want to explore for gas, you're not going to have gas. And, and I mean, there you can say, but let's jump to renewables. But the world actually needs the products of mining. And that leads me perfectly into what excites me. The world needs more mining for the future we all dream about than less, than ever in the past. You know, and you hear the stories about lithium and cobalt, and I will tell you about manganese and copper. But, I mean, Marco Tefani always says, if, you know, if it isn't mined, it's grown. But, I mean, there's a truth in... So, all the stuff we need, uh, you know, the renewable energy, the solar panels, there's all mining, you know, to go you, into You need that. the equipment to capture the sun's yeah. heat. And then yeah. we get to NIMBY, you know, not in my backyard. So can we go and mine it in the outback of Australia? Of course we can, you know. There's nothing else happening <laughs> there anyway. You know, on the Arctic Circle yeah. or under the ocean floor. I don't like any, too many of those ideas. But the fact is, so, we, so mining is going to be very exciting. Lots of mining. As miners, we need to become better neighbours. We mustn't have tailings 
dams spill into the river like in KZN just now. We need to get our act together. We need to be held accountable. And for people, what an exciting thing. I mean, we're going to have Teslas in mining. We're going to have people who disrupt how you launch a rocket. We're going to have people who disrupt how you mine. We're going to have people who think so differently about mining with technology, with modernization. I mean, you know, we're going to have engineers sitting in Santon mining, not going underground in Welcome. I mean, the technology exists, you know, it's... It's it's operation centers. I mean, so so if I could be um, 18 again, 17, I mean, I probably won't get the bursary this time because I'm not as advantaged as um, white and male, but if I worked a bit harder and had better results and I qualified, I would study mining or any associated... All, all over again. All over again because it's going to be super fun. It's going to be much more you know, scientific, technological, um, and unfortunately, not unfortunately, but for those people who don't like people in action, unfortunately, it's always going to have some people component. So I would much rather excite a team of miners like me to achieve, uh, you know, spectacular things than talk with three other propellers. But you are going to, there's always going to be a human component and therefore a leadership component to it. Are you, are you, uh, I mean, obviously leadership um, is close to your heart. I mean, is that something, you mentioned the junior in Darbas and, and Joburg, the mining in Darbas and so on. Is that your way of just sharing knowledge? Is, is that how you get this message across? Or let's put it, I mean, that is clearly, as we said, and I think that's, that's probably the most powerful theme throughout. Mm. You know, that's the opportunity and, and the problem at the moment is that communication, uh, benchmarking, sharing best practice, comparing notes. How do you bridge that? Is that something actively involved with? How do you see that changing moving forward? So, so our conferences started off as a, how could we allow once a year a conversation in Cape Town that had nothing to do with mining but claimed to be mining. Fantastic business, <laughs> but my gosh, it was ready to be disrupted. So when Paula Mansi came back from London, like you, you see, when you guys came back, you come with smart idea. She wanted to have a proper, real mining conversation. Obviously, Joburg, there are a few more miners here than in Cape Town. You know? <laughs> um, <sure. laughs> and so the Joburg in Darba was very much, at a time... 10, 11 years ago, we needed to have blunt conversations, not secret conversations. I mean, the world didn't like us. They didn't like us as businesses. We could not see eye to eye with our unions, with our ministers. And so it started off as an open, blunt conversation. And I've chaired almost all of them, and it's fantastic fun. And it's, it's giving back, but it's much more giving back and making sure the right people talk to each other publicly. The journalists sit there, and when Marco Tufani says something to Gwede Mantas or, or, or Neil Frenemann says something about Gwede, Gwede is in the room, Everybody or he knows. reads it on a tweet 30 seconds later. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I think we've achieved that, and that has flowed over into a PGM's uh, conference, because 80% of the world's PGM is in one room at one time when we talk about PGM's, and what a spectacular metal for the future. It is, uh, you know, we actually have a cold day because we can wish coal away, but it isn't going to go away, you know. And so coal and energy is so interlinked. And, we, you know, when you talk about a just energy transition, again, it's not an ESCOM conversation. It's much broader. And these are the conversations. I just say, come with your negative views, but say them publicly. 
You know who don't come to these conferences? The professors in Cape Town who tweet about how bad it is, but they don't want to be part of the conversation, you know? So I want to write a blog and post it amongst my friends. That doesn't really take us forward, you know? And I mean, there are lots of bad things about mining and coal mining, but we should have these conversations. Obviously, hydrogen is a sort of a future energy source. Is getting, so that's the public platform. Make sure the right conversations take place. And flip, once a year, I refresh my knowledge because I, for two days, sit and listen. And I mean, at the end of the two days, I know a lot more about hydrogen than what I knew at the start of it. So selfishly, if I love a topic, you'll see a conference and we'll, you know, educate me. Yeah. Um, but, you know, with, actually with my wife, Tracy, in Thinkspiration, we do unashamedly strategy leadership development. That's where we take this. It's not so hard. You know, the hard part is shut up, listen. Get everybody in the room to shut, uh, and I've, shut up and listen. Exactly. Yeah. Have you got the listening skills, you know? Can you communicate, you know? Do you know how to tell a story so that somebody listens to you, you know? And then the strategy. Is it compelling? Have you, have you made it such that people actually want to join? You know, is this like a, a you know, a whatever, who these people who every, every year sends a bobsleigh team to the, you know, Winter Olympics? Is it that story? Is it like a, you know I mean? There's still a... Jamaicans. People, the Jamaicans, you know? <laughs> To still it, make it exciting, and then empower your people to get everybody to, in the organization to talk about it. And I mean, when people say to me, what are you doing here teaching frontline supervisors how to tell a story? I said, but what else would I be doing? I mean, sure. this is fantastic. This is the, this is the solution, yeah. It's why do you teach your child anything? Mm. Because the reward of, wow, no? they get it, they kind of share my values. I mean, so I, I, I really enjoy that. And I'm obviously... Probably it's 12 years out of the corporate world, I can do exactly that which excites me. Mm. And, and again, and I think we'll finish there, Bernard. It's, it's, I always say it's that what you're teaching is what you successfully implemented. Mm. It's not theoretical nonsense. Mm. And I think that's also when it comes to business, again, I've got a, a thing against it. So much theory, too much theory, too, 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 too little uh, Practical, but so more case studies. It's almost like case studies. Yeah. Almost what? Yeah. It's, it's 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 not rocket science. And normally, it's a very simple story that that that's the solution. So, Bernard, I, I can. Uh, I think we need to have a follow up if you don't mind. I, I really enjoyed this. <laughs> this is and this was powerful. Thank you very much for for. Uh, and, and I'm just grateful that. Again, it's not. I'm not sugarcoating or as we say in Afrikaans, like, but I'm just so uh, glad to hear that we've got this. Um, historical superstars that are still at the forefront mm. and, and taking the hands of the, the next generation. And that, that, that to me is, is, is exciting. Um, otherwise, you end up with a wise ass. <laughs> I work hard to commentate like Nas Wurta, but I wouldn't mind being a little bit of a Rassi yeah. that coach the next generation. Yeah. And I will never be on the field again to claim that I can do it better and therefore, the next generation needs to do it differently. They will do it differently, you know, and they should not make my mistakes. Firstly, they were too big. And secondly, they were dumb mistakes. And, I mean, you know, let's make new, you know, creative sort of mistakes. And then the money yeah, Well, failing, failing forward, right? Absolutely. So we, we, we let's fail about. forward. And mm-hmm. let's allow the young people the opportunities to fail forward. Sana, thank you so much for your time. really enjoyed the chat. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, 
please subscribe and leave a review and follow us on social media at biz, B-I-Z, crush.